We are building a marketplace where campaigns and organizations, you know, progressive movement orgs can can go create NFTs and list them on front row. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is at the forefront of another new development in the intersection of technology and politics. He is Parker Butterworth, a political consultant who launched a new enterprise around the use of NFTs. It's called Go Front Row, and it's the first major political NFT platform built to power progressive causes, campaigns, and movements. They launched recently with the Texas Democratic Party. NFTs are non-fungible tokens that can be used as a certificate of authenticity for digital art and other products. We had a good conversation about Parker's path to this moment and where he is in the process of putting it all together. I found it interesting. And if you're wondering whether NFTs might make sense for you to use in politics, you should listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Parker Butterworth of Front Row and CN4 Partners. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Parker, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, uh, Parker Budworth. I'm a political consultant. Um, been working on political campaigns since 2006. Um, a partner at CN4, which is a, a consultancy based out of Seattle, and a co-founder of um, Front Row, which is the first political NFT platform for progressive movements and causes. Still pretty early in your career, even though you say since 2006, I've, of course, talked to people who've been at it for decades. Tell me just a little bit about how you entered the political arena as a professional. I think it's a little bit of a genetic disease. My father was a political consultant. I kind of grew up with dining room tables of walk cards. I've appeared in political advertisements as a young child, memories of firefighters and yard signs, um, you know, when they actually had to nail them to wood and stuff. And so I feel at times very young and very old. Um, but you know, I think I just started because I just, I couldn't see another path to make change, to be part of a community, to work with really interesting people. And I was really lucky. Uh, I got a liberal arts degree um, out of George Washington University, and I graduated in 2009. And for a while, I thought that you know, um, I was going to be brilliant at National Geographic or something. And then, you know, obviously there were just no, no jobs. Luckily, I'd kind of had experience doing political campaigns, which there are always jobs. So, so that's kind of how I got started in the professional of it. But I think my experience goes back to 
probably before I could talk in a way. Well, tell me more about your father. What sort of consultant was he? What was his story? Yeah, Blair Butterworth. He worked for, he had kind of Blair Butterworth and Associates, um, FDR services. Um, and this was way back in the um, 70s. So I think that you know, if you kind of talk to any political consultant historian, his name uh, should pop up in terms of, you know, kind of being some of the first professional political consultants to do this kind of year round. He worked for, God, I mean, Barbara Roberts in Oregon, Gary Locke, which is a little bit more recent. Uh, I could just go down his, um, you know, he, he worked on Ed Muskie's campaign um, back in the day. And so as a media person, as a manager, general consultant, what sort of? Yeah, uh, all of the above, um, you know, and so uh, he was campaign manager for Dixie Lee Ray, um, who was a uh, governor of Washington um, and uh, way, way back in the day. Um, and yeah, and so and then he kind of he graduated from management to consultant I and mean, consultant. He did media, um, you know, TV, you know, TV, direct mail, the, the whole thing. He got out of the game before he was forced to become a digital consultant. Probably lucky for lucky for all of us. Well, I've, I've noticed with kids that some will happily go into sort of the family business and others, that's absolutely the last thing that they would do. Did you have a moment where you're like, ah, uh, I guess this is the path of least resistance uh, or was it more like you were continually interested in this and you always saw yourself going down that road or how did it work out for you? Yeah, I did not have a problem going into the business. The people are fascinating. The causes make you sleep well at night. You really feel like you're doing good work. I think with following in anybody's footsteps, there's always that thing of, um, of, of shadowing, um, which is something that me and my therapist discuss constantly. And so I'll just save it, save it for, for me. And what her. does that mean? Shadowing? Like, uh, like, you know, in some circles, my, my father was a legend. Um, I mean, and, um, and in kind of also a funny way that my grandfather, his father, he was a career diplomat that was the U.S. representative to the European coal and steel community when they were um, merging with Euratom to, you know, create the European Union. I mean, my father's stories of being in the Luxembourg townhouse of, of all the comings and goings of creating one of, you know, probably one of the most important political bodies um, ever. And so I think that even my father had the overshadowing of, oh, my God, I need to get away from that. And and I think following so directly in somebody's footsteps, there is, you know, there's that, you know, can I, can I also be a legend or how do I, how do I deal with not being one? I'm old enough that I used to watch Bobby Bonds who came before Barry Bonds. And <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes you just can elevate yourself even further. If your father is a legend, that's a little tough. I feel like I should ask you about your mother because it seems imbalanced. What did your mom do? Oh, my mother is battle axe legend in her own right. One of the first women um, attorneys in the uh, Washington State Attorney General's office. True public servant, um, a lawyer that I would never want to see across from me. Sometimes I'm still even slightly scared at the dinner table. The thing she's been able to, you know, kind of overcome and be a trailblazer in her own right is uh, truly, truly amazing. Well, it's nice to hear someone speak well of their parents. That's uh, not always the case, but <laughs> you try to do it at least when you're going to, you know, 
you know, in public, right? When you're being recorded. Yeah, oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> you said you were at George Washington and then uh, started in the ranks of people working in campaigns. Tell me a little about how that got going. Oh, um, it got going great. I feel like it's very, very fortunate. So I was in the finance shop of um, uh, John Kitzhaber's um, legendary kind of 2004 um, race to become Oregon's governor again in Oregon. You have two years of being governor or two terms, eight years of being governor, and then you can run again after eight more years. And so um, and a lot of people, you know, choose choose not to do that. They choose to kind of get on with their lives. And um, and John Kitzhaber said, no, he's, he's coming back. Um, for a feat I don't think ever, ever done before in Oregon. And so, um, yeah, so I was a part of his finance shop, setting up events and going to house parties and I would, uh, drive him around. And sometimes I would, I would wake up in the middle of the night, um, and drive to like, uh, Redmond, um, Oregon, which is kind of near Bend. That's the airport. And he would, he would fly in on, uh, on a plane and I would pick him up and we would drive around the central Oregon a little bit and then drop him back off at, the Redmond airport to get back on a plane so he could be home for dinner. And then I would trek the the three hours back to Portland. And so d- drove, drove around a lot. That's for sure. Did your dad know him? How did you find that particular job? I found that particular job. So I worked on a campaign, Darcy Burner's campaign in 2006. Um, and she lost that race for, for Congress. She ran again in 2008. The campaign manager for Darcy in 2008 was a man by the name of Derek Humphrey, who then was the manager for John Kitzhaber. So through that networking, was able to email him and um, say, I really, really need a, <laughs> I really need a job. Things are getting a little bit hot on the home front. And he said, come down to, come down to Portland, come work for, for Kitzhaber. I've talked to a bunch of people who've been a driver for a politician like that. I've noted that that Maybe it's not a glamorous thing at first uh, look and sounds like quite a trek for you, but getting the exposure to the human being who, behind the politician must have been interesting. What did you learn about Kitzhaber and what did you learn about politics from doing that? I learned that these great big figures are still human beings at the end of the day. Uh, they still need to stop and go to the bathroom. They still need snacks. They still want to chit chat. I also, in one instance, I drove around Ambassador Wilson, Joe or Joe Wilson at the time, Valerie's um, husband and um, more former husband. Um, and, you know, he one of those, you know, he kind of enjoyed it and told a lot of stories and stuff. But Kitzhaber kind of would just get in the car, very, you know, where are we going? What are we doing? Where's my briefing book? Do I need to do call time in the car? God, I really don't want to do call time in the car. Please, you know, don't tell anybody that I didn't do my calls. <laughs> Um, it's like coming off your diet. Yep. Yeah. They get to dictate the relationship. Um, you know, I think sometimes and Kitzhaber would flow back and forth between wanting to explain why he was doing these things and, and what the bigger meaning was. And, you know, to kind of, uh, you know, teach this, you know, teach this boy the, you know, lessons of, you know, life and of politics. And, you know, sometimes he was kind of roguish and had, you know, stories of, you know, he was an emergency room doctor in Roslyn, Oregon, which is rural Oregon. And, you know, so some pretty, pretty funny stories. And sometimes he would just, you know, want to, you know, talk about, you know, campaign gossip or very, 
dumb things just to probably take his mind off of it. And, and you as the driver, right, you're kind of just there. Whatever they want to do, you have to roll with it. Did that make you think, oh, this person is less than I would think seeing him on TV or something? Or did it make you think, oh, I can see why someone like this became the governor of a state or both? It made me think that to be a great politician, that you have to have a personality and your personality has many facets. I've thought a lot about and seen a lot and can analyze a lot of current clients, past clients, you know, hopefully future clients. And the ones who can switch and go between all of these lanes is a way of connecting with people that that's a sign of greatness. The politicians that have one tone, that can get them to, to a certain hilltop, but not necessarily to the highest mountain. What was next for you in the campaign world? Next job, I worked for Charlie Hales's Portland Merrill campaign as a kind of the uh, first staffer, kind of first campaign manager. I was just kind of a continuation of, of my building network in Portland and going from finance, finance staffer to a little bit more of a management role, which then I left that and because the you know, federal campaigns are kind of very interesting and um, went actually to become Darcy Berner's 2012 congressional campaign finance director and kind of took that, you know, you kind of road warrior it up, but just basically just between that small segment of I-5 in the Pacific Northwest. Was that like a lot of managing call time? What was that role for you at that time? Yeah, that role for me was a few things is that Darcy had, and she was kind of a, in 2006, Nate, you know, one of the first net roots um, Darlings, Daily, Daily Coast. So she actually had a pretty big email list um, in 2012. And so it was, you know, kind of, you know, kind of thankful of that opportunity to start really play around with, you know, A-B testing and, you know, kind of, you know, digital, um, digital fundraising best practices or email fundraising best practices. But we had a call time manager and, you know, finance assistants and event assistants and uh, back at this time, we also had a fundraising direct mail consultant. Uh, and um, even though I do hear that fundraising direct mail is still going strong, um, so good for them. And kind of the national pack people and all of that team for that that type of race. So what was your route from that start to CN4? Yeah, so um, I spent some time in Nevada working for a candidate, Lucy Flores, um, when she was running for lieutenant governor in 2014. and. I left in the primary because uh, right after the primary, because it just got to be 111 degrees in Las Vegas, a little bit too, too hot for me. And this is actually kind of going back to your, one of your original points. I left without a job or anything. I think I was just a little bit burnt out from the, the campaign road. And I ended up going back to Seattle and I went to culinary school because I kind of got back to Seattle when there's only a couple months left in the 14th cycle decided it probably wasn't worth it to spend two months on something. And so, but I was like, you have to keep busy. And so I enrolled in a Seattle community college culinary program. And I thought it was just, just going to be for, you know, for a quarter, maybe two before things heat up again. And I kind of get back on with my life, but ended up enjoying it so much that I, I did the entire program, <laughs> did the entire program. Um, I got a certificate of culinary excellence. Um, which has now kind of faded slightly. 
But then I got a job in a restaurant thinking I'm going to be a chef. And I, for months, worked for, at this point, $13.25 an hour. And, and, you know, campaigns, you have to manage it well, but the salary, you know, can be pretty good. And thirteen twenty five an hour was hard. And I just couldn't see um, how I could buy a house. I couldn't see how I could do anything. A lot of people can very much attest to that feeling, especially in Seattle these days. Um, and so then, yeah. And so then I called, I called um, the founder of CN4, Dean Nielsen, who I'd worked on a couple of campaigns with and was, hey, <laughs> I, I don't know if I can go back on the road. I don't know if I could, you know, have my heart broken, you know, I think I need to spread the campaigns out a little bit, not invest so much into one. Um, and he was like, why don't you just come be a consultant for me? You, you know how to do all this stuff. And that's, yeah, so that was 2016 and five, six years later, here I am. Tell me about CN4. It's not a consultancy I knew much about. What kind of work do they do and how is it working there? Yeah. Um, it is. I mean, so CN4 is a democratic firm based out of um, based out of Seattle. Uh, but we do a lot of work and we do a lot of education association and kind of union stuff. Um, you know, New Jersey Education Association, a big client, Montana um, Federation of Public Employees. Uh, you know, we do, you know, some IEs here and there, some AFSCME stuff. Um, and yeah, I mean, we're just kind of in this corner expanding, we have um, we have people in Providence, uh, Rhode Island, and Houston, Texas now, and we kind of do at the beginning a lot of direct mail. Um, and for some of our larger clients, where they're where they're direct mail um, voter contact vendor, um, but you know, as I think as you've been talking to folks and I've been listening to your podcast and listening to your interviews, there's you know, political storytelling is getting a little, little bit less siloed than it has been in the past, and so we've. We also have a you know kind of robust digital video um, you know TV uh, TV program that we offer clients if they so choose to go with a uh, one stop shop. And working there is great. I mean, no no complaints. Being a political consultant, there are worse gigs in the world. And you're a partner now. Yeah, I'm a partner. Worked uh, worked my way up, landed a couple you know good clients that then you know, parlay into you know a small amount of equity. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. Are you one of these people who got interested in crypto? I ask for obvious reasons because of where we're headed. Yeah, I did not get brought into this kind of Web3 blockchain technology through cryptocurrency. Um, in some ways, just like me on a personal level, like I'm not financially responsible. So I can't, you know, I, nobody, I can't, I can't trust my, you know, my own finances. I think I'm probably one of the only people who still is stock, you know, of my age, who still is stock in like Berkshire Hathaway, you know, I'm like, let Warren Buffett decide. Um, but I got interested in, in what crypto was powering. And I've kind of always been this, you know, decentralization. I've been I'm like very wary of big banks, very wary of uh, big social networks. Um, I participate at the smallest effort possible. And so this decentralization of information, decentralization and the things they were building. And I got into NFTs because of like the NBA top shots. I don't know if you've seen those, but like the, you know, the sweet NFTs of like the slam dunks or the half court shots and stuff like that. You should check out NBA top shots. But that's kind of what brought me into the space, not the kind of the cryptocurrency, Bitcoin stuff. 
I've talked to a number of people about these NFTs. I've um, read some articles about them. I'm still a little mystified about what good it is to own one. Explain to me why I would want to have a NFT of, you know, LeBron James dunking over somebody or any other NFT. What's the attraction there? Aside from maybe someone else might want to buy it from me down the road. What good does it do? There's a couple of things. It's one, there is a human condition of wanting to own, um, which is kind of baked psychologically in there. Uh, you know, we have the, it's kind of the, the show off vibes. Do you know like what like a Samsung frame TV is? Um, I know what a Samsung TV is. I've seen things that hang them on the wall. I don't, no, yeah. I don't. I guess they, I don't. They kind of call this model the frame because it's like, you know, it, it has like a wood frame around it and it kind of gets really, um, you know, gets really close to your wall. And one of the things that it has on it is like if you hook it up to the Internet, you could connect it to like the Museum of Modern Art or something. And it has, you know, kind of free, you know, so it can kind of like be a piece of art instead of like, oh, this is just an ugly black, you know, TV. I read somewhere years ago that Bill Gates had a big hallway with art that was all video powered. I don't know if it's true or not, you know, in his $65 million house or whatever it was. Yeah, Bill Bill doesn't let me into his house either. Maybe one day. So there's this this thing of just like, say you have that and you can just throw up your NFT of, of LeBron James. Yes, it exists, you know, and you can go to YouTube and you could go to LeBron James Clippers game, you know, sl you know, slam dunk, whatever. And it could be there. But there's a little bit more of a, there's more part of the human condition that says that I have this NFT. This is the wallet's connected to. This is my NFT of LeBron James um, slam dunk. And I, I think that that's only, I mean, I think that's only growing. Well, I don't know if this is still happening where you could buy a star. Maybe it's like the naming rights or something. There's a lot of stars. There's hundreds of billions of stars. This one's mine. I'm not sure if that's going to be honored by the inhabitants of another solar system or something, but, you know. The good thing about NFTs is that it, it can and can, in fact, be honored. It provides some assurance that you are connected to it, right? But, like, that's not an exclusive thing necessarily, right? Like, multiple people could own a share of that same dunk, right? Yeah, absolutely. The concept of having sole ownership, you know, is, I mean, it's just, it's just exclusivity, but I think having shared ownership, I mean, is, is great. And, and for what front row is as well as adding another, another element into this and kind of, let me give like a little bit of, a, of an example is that it's the reason why I bought this NFT. I support this progressive cause. I support this progressive movement. I was going to, I was, you know, going to give money anyway. I'm a supporter or like maybe this piece of art really connected it for me. This, this NFT really connected it for me. And now I'm a new supporter. Um, and so that's what we do. And my example is, do you know the artist Peter Max? I do. Okay. So I have Peter Max. Prolific pop artist. Yeah. Well, yes. well, psychedelic. Um, I have this Peter Max. It's a, let's it's signed, not numbered print. Not, not the original. And it's, it was for the, it was, it was in, it was for charity for the New York public library. It kind of says that's this whole be all you can be period read. Um, and it's, it's hanging. I have it, you know, um, many other people have it. Um, 
honestly, Peter Max's uh, psychedelic pop art thing, not my cup of tea, not my thing. Um, but I have it because I obviously I support libraries, you know, like, I mean, and, and that was a an act of, of supporting. And that's kind of I mean, that signature on that print that is you can, you know, if you Google Peter Max, New York Public Libraries, BL, you can be read, you could pull it up on your Google, you could go and boom. And that, you know, the signature is the only thing that, you know, quote unquote, makes it authentic. Um, and that's what an NFT really is. It's just a certificate of authenticity. So um, so that's how I would I would say that we need to start thinking about this. Of There's ways to have authentic ownership. There's ways of being a, of a supporter and having a thing. And it's less of just like, can I grab it? You know, can I hide it away if I want to? I'm part of something, not I own something. It's, a li- it's very le- much less tangible. I mean, we're, you know, ex- let's, you know, we can talk about into art, right? You know, but I will say that NFTs and the blockchain technology, the tech, like the technology about it is incredibly secure. It's more secure than a certificate of authenticity piece of paper to forge or to falsify a piece of the blockchain is extremely, extremely difficult. And that's one of the benefits of it is that, you know, for certain that this NFT is connected to this person's wallet, that if it gets transferred, then that's recorded. It's the new age of certificate of authenticity for digital assets. And it's super cool. My experience is I bought three Bitcoins back when Bitcoins were $33 a piece. I bought three for hundred dollars. What are you still uh, doing here? At the, what, what? So I, I, I just did it to participate. I had some employees who were mining. They, um, they got them for free. They ended up being able to buy houses in some cases out of their Bitcoins. They didn't hold them as long as maybe they should have probably my advice, but like, I think I sold one for $200 or something to make sure I doubled my money. And and then the other two got lost because they were on Mount Gox or something. And somebody hacked in, something happened. They went away. They were actually in somebody else's account. I hadn't put them there. He was holding them for me. So my experience is, I'm not sure the security is quite of this world is quite what it's cracked up to be. But what I'm interested in is you obviously got excited enough about NFTs and about their connection to politics and campaigning to launch a company around it. Tell me about that founding story and what you were thinking and why that was something you were going to put your hard-earned time and efforts into. One of my great friends and another co-founder of Front Row, Brandon Hall, uh, we're both fans of the, um, the band Kings of Leon. Um, and Kings of Leon, they they did an NFT of their new album. And he was more into crypto than, than I was. Um, but we were kind of talking about it. And, you know, we kind of saw that this ability to NFT digital assets, which last spring and summer's kind of craze of NFTs, they were NFTs of these powerful moments and these kind of momentous little points of time, like Jack's first tweet or really epically cool uh, pieces of digital art from very creative folks that were selling for like tremendous amounts of um, tremendous amounts of um, money and, and cryptocurrency, and we just kind of thought there was like campaigns 
we have all this stuff. I mean, you know, we have moments in time. We have powerful stories. We have great connections to artists to make these make these pieces of art. And we also have people who are supporting us, who are supporting the mission, who are getting an email from Nancy Pelosi's iPhone that there is a 10, you know, there's a big match on this email and give us money to keep to keep the keep the the fuel, you know, keep keep us fueled, keep keep us going. We're like, hey, what if we what if we give them something that we you know, we believe and we know has tangible value, which are these NFTs? Let's give them the opportunity to to participate as well. One side. And then and then we're like, and also give maybe these crypto folks who kind of give them an opportunity to say, hey, we actually, you know, we we support these progressive causes too. Um, so like, you know, let's throw some crypto and, and help power these movements. So we kind of just had like a two-hour conversation about that. And then we're just like, why? Why, why isn't this happening? Because, you know, I think at the time we were just chatting, right? We weren't saying we're going to do this. We were like, why isn't this happening? And, you know, both of us, um, and Brandon Hall's a media strategist, his firm Left Hook, um, Left Hook Strategies. We both know, you know, very intimate knowledge of, of campaigns and political organizations. And we were, you know, we were like, well, you know, right now the, you know, if you go into OpenSea, you really just need to connect your wallet. There's no first name. There's no last name. There's no email. There's no phone number. There's no address. There's no, there's no self-verification that you are over 18 years old, that you are not a federal contractor, that you're a U.S. green card holder or a U.S. citizen. Um, there's, there's none of that, which you know, political campaigns need and kind of FEC compliant organizations need. Um, and I mean, that's one of, that's one of the big you know, barriers of entry that we saw for them. Um, and we saw that there was no platform that was um, that was that was tackling that. That was having folks create an account, verify their account, do all the things that you would if you were you know going to contribute, which you functionally are when you purchase a NFT off front row. You know, and so we're just like, well, we really like this stuff. We really believe in 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 how to figure out how to push these powerful digital moments out there and how to kind of get our side than the progressives and the Democrats to, you know, to start kind of u- utilizing this technology. We're like, let's do it. And two folks who are not tech entrepreneurs in any sense of the word that are in fact, probably um, old, you know, direct mail, right? People would call me like the dinosaur of, of political consultant, you know? Um, uh, we just decided to go for it just because we, we thought we saw the need and we just, uh, you know, kind of thought that our side, if we push this out and we start creating amazing digital contents and whether you, whatever your view of what art is, but digital art is here to stay and what art can be in a digital form is tremendous and a new, you know, a new frontier that we've only really begun to scrape the surface of telling a story telling Democrats and progressive side of the story that, you know, that we're all in this together and that we need to kind of keep, you know, keep fighting together um, for, for equality and for, um, for all the stuff that, you know, let's do it. And so we brought on a couple other folks, people who knew how to you know, do the tech and all that stuff and um, went from there. Started having a lot of conversations that started off, you know, kind of as, as, as we did just, you know, I mean, of like, what's an NFT? You know, and but it's been really exciting. Been really more than happy to spend my hard-earned time on this. 
Well, tell me a little bit about what it took to build a platform. Um, is it a high barrier to entry to do that? Is it, did it cost a lot of money? Was it technically difficult? What had to come together to get something that would work? At the time that we started building the platform, there it, it really was very custom. There weren't all these other white label opportunities of hey, do this. And there still, you know, there still isn't. I mean, there's this, and this is something that I think is a little bit baked in into the crypto community is this concept of anonymity, which doesn't work with political campaigns, um, and especially not progressive political campaigns. Um, and, you know, so there's, a, you know, that whole account setup and verifying your identification and saying, hey, I am, I am me, you are we, we are all together, um, is that, is was just something that we needed to really create. Um, and so to do that, and then to connect the wallets for the crypto and the credit card processing and kind of the compliance back end, you know, to make sure that nobody ends up in FEC jail or anything like that, is that we kind of did have to start from scratch. And so um, there was a lot of in investment in terms of time of thinking through this and, and running through the scenarios as somebody who is coming from a crypto background, you know, who wants to connect their wallet and somebody who doesn't really want to touch crypto. So I kind of talk about the beginning is that I got into this, not big through cryptocurrency, but through the kind of the Web3 and blockchain technology. And one of the great things about Front Row is that if you have a supporter that wants an NFT, just kind of just knows that it's a certificate of authenticity for digital art, they really want this digital version but they don't want to buy Ethereum. They don't want to buy Bitcoin. They don't, you know, and and they can they can do that through our site. They can put their credit card in, create an account like they would, or you know, um, like they would, you know, in, in other places, and um, and and just kind of be able to go through it, and then it can kind of live on our site um, without them having to send it to another wallet or anything, and, and it could still have all the same functionality and utility. So there's just like a lot of like scenarios that we just kind of had to go through. Um, and then, yeah, and you know, um, I was, in my in my day job, I I probably was my kind of the person who does web political websites for me. I every year I yell at him. I was like, "Why is this so expensive?" And you know, you're, you're just you're just changing the colors, and you know, and there's a menu at top, and then there's an image, and like, what, like, what, what, what's going on? And you know, he kind of just like laughs laughs me off as most people do. And now I totally get it. I'll never go back. Tech and building tech. And making sure the tech works and testing the tech and connecting it and all that stuff. It's God's work. It's well, well paid God's work. Um, <laughs> I've noticed that there's more than meets the eye to it. So walk me through the, a situation. Let's say like my brother ran for office. He was uh, twice elected as county commissioner of Boulder County, Colorado, um, which is uh, actually a pretty serious office. And he ran a campaign fairly small budgeted, but you know, they had yard signs, they had buttons. They're like NFTs except real. I had a client who actually bought a, a, a button maker. Um, and I've spent more than, more than enough share. Uh, this is, this was like in 2004 or something. Rolling buttons. Yeah. Yeah. But so let's say you had a campaign like that. Is there a role at this stage for NFTs in a campaign like that? 
if you were advising someone running for an office like that to employ this way of rewarding their volunteers or giving an opportunity to their donors, tell me about it. Yes, I 100% think there's a role. There's what needs to happen. This is what I tell everybody is that don't just treat NFTs like a way to suck money out of your kind of existing contributors. Um, and like we look, we have we have we have we have emails for that. You know, you could you can you know you you could do that. Have a story of why you're getting into the the NFT space. And that story could be many things. I mean, it could be the fact that maybe your partner is a great digital artist and this is this is where digital art will be like authenticated. I mean, that's I think it's pretty clear that that's where it's going. I mean, Adobe is, you know, actively building in NFT technology into their cloud platforms. Um, you know, so it could be like, hey, my partner had, you know, made this crazy cool piece of digital art. We're going to NFT it. It could be the fact that this is new technology. This is exciting technology, cryptocurrency, Web3. I mean, there are new industries, you know, and there's there are going to be new new firms that pop up, new tech centers that pop up around it. Does your story connect to decentralization? Um, you know, are we, are we a little bit scared of having so much of our data and personality in Facebook land servers and in Google land servers and instead not spread out with some kind of transparency and access. Do you have a story about that? Do you have a story about that you are you're a young person of color candidate and you are running against like the machine, you know? And you have to do things differently and you have to think outside of the box. NFTs are a great narrative for for that as well. I can get that and I remember for generations campaigns have signaled their uh, literacy in the world of tech by participating in or a million other things. So I get that, right? There's, but like what's very likely at this moment is that a tiny fraction of your audience has heard of NFTs or has a place to store them. So you are very early in the adoption of the te technology, which is great if it works out to be something in the long run, you have that kind of first mover, early mover advantage from getting going in this and getting used. I understand that for the company side, but like supposing I'm actually right now running a campaign like that, I got to spend my time communicating about this rather esoteric, not very used thing at this point, I could totally imagine like if it's Pete Buttigieg or Yang for president or something and you have a national audience and your audience is young people who are hip to uh, tech, you could have a, enough critical mass that like people are into it or like oh, if it was Obama and you wanted to see that hope poster, you wanted a piece of that hope poster all that makes sense but like how are you now as a business when you're talking to an actual candidate how do you sell this how do you make them understand like you a lot of what you said was like oh it's kind of cool for branding yourself as as with it or decentralized or whatever but like how is that going to help me win my campaign or reward my people like in like say it simply in a way so that someone might come to you based on hearing this and say, <laughs> I want to do that. Yeah, we have a lot of interest. And so definitely um, 
parker at gofrontrow.io. Send me, send me an email. Um, yeah, this can raise your campaign more money doing it than by not doing it. That's a huge thing of, um, of winning campaigns. Let's raise you know, a couple thousand dollars, right? That could be that in a close race, we'd rather have that than not have that. I think that for a lot of these folks, and certainly ones that we've talked to, they know that this is an early space. They know that the community is building. Um, they know that there's utility of an NFT, um, which by that means is kind of, you know, this able to verify that somebody owns this NFT and maybe they get exclusive access or, you know, they can go to a special Zoom meeting, join a Discord server, all that stuff. But for most of them, say so you have this content, you have this content that can be digitized, whether it's, you know, say... Stacey Abrams' first walk card. You have that somewhere. Stacey, you sign that, and we create a digital version of NFT that obviously Stacey is a you know very large email list. I'm sure she would find incredible amounts of success with it with NFTs. But you know, say that it was a lower level congressional candidate. You have that sitting around. Um, you know, from your from your early school board race, and now you're running for Congress. Um, the amount of effort that goes into actually making the NFT and for front row, we, you know, there's no upfront cost. We take a commission of the sales. Uh, is that why not? Why not raise a little bit more money than you would without? And maybe, you know, maybe a lot. Maybe it signals to a segment of um, of donors that you're really into this space and that you're, you know, forward, you know, forward thinking. Um, maybe you, as you go through the process of of thinking about and maybe spending a day of being like, what kind of digital art, you know, and they're like, oh, actually, I know somebody who is a really well-known NFT artist that maybe we should do a collaboration with them. You don't know until you start. And in politics, there are no real promises. So we should never, never do that. But why not? You have it. I know that you have content somewhere. And let's, let's make an NFT out of it. And let's try to engage supporters with it. Do you think you have an unfair advantage promoting NFTs in the progressive campaign space because there's a company called NGP, which sounds a little bit like it? That's already there. <laughs> I mean, I think that the behemoth that NGP is, we had to ride the coattails, you know, and everybody, you know, I mean, really what we say is sooner or later, NGP is going to be selling NFTs. And Speaking of that, like, you said that you're the first progressive group to do this. I, I know there are other uh, platforms out there. H how do you see so far the competitive landscape for what you provide? Who else do you take note of? And how do you distinguish what your offering is from what else you see? I mean, on all honesty, I haven't had a, I haven't been able to, whether the, the either the platform's not open yet, um, you know, nobody's really inviting me to be like a beta, beta tester, right? Um, so on, on other people's platforms, but I haven't seen a lot of platforms for NFTs that have gone through the compliance verification account creation that needs to happen. And so we still feel really confident in that, that that's a, that's a really key aspect to to our platform that, that we that we have to offer in order for, for us to um, exist, really. I spend a lot of time on eBay. I spend a lot of time on the eBay's user interface. Those are the folks that I'm really looking at. Let's stop thinking that NFTs are this strange... So are you making a marketplace for buying NFTs? 
on your site. I had assumed that you were something which enabled a campaign to employ an NFT on their behalf, but are you also, or do you have designs on, on being a marketplace where any progressive can go buy an NFT? Okay. So explain that. Yeah. So we, and for, and we want to do it for a variety of reasons, but we are building a marketplace where campaigns and organizations, you know, progressive movement orgs can, can go create NFTs and list them on front row. Can you buy and sell NFTs on eBay? Not yet, but don't, don't say don't. that. <laughs> um, yeah. And so in, in real- it would seem like the kind of thing that they might try to do being fairly smart. Um, Everybody in, folks. in, I can buy campaign buttons there. I've noticed and corporate. Yeah. <laughs> the, look and political memorabilia, NFT and those things is, a, is, I mean, that I think that's going to be a huge part of, um, you know, the, I mean, collectors will collect that's, Tried and true, um, you know, and just to also go back a few things is that, so yeah, I mean, cor- like corporate America is, you know, NBA, NFL, Nike, they're all cruised into this space very, very hard. We're actually very excited that politics and especially progressive politics um, is it maybe we won't be so far behind as we usually are. And, and to, to, to that effect, one of our equity partners and strategic advisors, Stephanie Shriok, um, she, you know, she was in the Dean campaign when the, you know, when they were, um, you know, kind of digital fundraising was, you know, what is this? She has a lot of just funny stories about how it kind of feels the same, except, you know, I think that we're, she says we're a little bit closer. Anyway, so back to the, you know, so, and back to also one of your points, you're absolutely right that right now that there is a, that it is, is there's a small amount of people who know Web3, blockchain, NFTs, crypto. But it is growing exponentially. That's a fact. So we are building the marketplace where if you are a progressive activist, contributor, investor, volunteer, or if you're just a collector, is that you can go to front row. You can potentially visit, you know, their, their little marketplaces, their, their little storefronts, um, or just browse the whole thing and say, hey, I'm looking to collect. I'm looking to contribute. And let's go pick up that Stacey Abrams walk cart. Who is using your uh, site so far? Who's using your technology? Who are some examples of of folks that are already on their way? Yeah, and a few things is like one. I would I would love to come back and in in six months after we've gone through a couple um, a couple drops with some of our clients to kind of explain the the process with them and give kind of like an insider look of of what these organizations and how they're kind of building their NFT collections. Uh, and I say that because uh, we are in the next month, we're going to be kind of announcing all of that about who's going to be using and who's. And so but for right now, I can't go into into too much detail, but large, large progressive organizations have signaled that they are they are ready, that front row has solved kind of the NFT problems for them and that they're ready to start engaging and telling telling their story in this space. We launched with the Texas Democratic Party. We kind of came together uh, during the summer where the walkouts, the arrest warrants, the, you know, the terrible laws that were coming into place. And they said, we need to do something um, or we need to do more things. And so, uh, so you know, we had a, you know, had a successful drop with them. And then we kind of went and re- retooled sales, you know, really going to push in the next, in the next month out um, these, these big organizations who I think will be um, good validators for for everybody who wants to get into this space. Given that you're not the only one 
with aspirations for sort of being this technology and, and this business, do you think it's important to go fast? Just talking about as a business right now, like sometimes it's wise to go slowly, get everything right, get your customer service working correctly, get your tech working, be deliberate, don't get ahead of yourself, keep your reputation strong. Other times there's kind of more of a gold rush in certain kinds of businesses or a virtual gold rush. Which do you feel is going on right now? Do you think you have time in the competition or are you in a hurry to make sure that like you're, you're established as, as a leader? I hate this type of answer, but I'm going to say both. We don't feel that we have to relaunch next week. Um, and especially because we, we feel with our discussions that we've had is that it's about doing it right. Um, and as, you know, honestly, as political professionals who work with these organizations on, on other types of projects, us going to them and, and being like, this is like, this is real. This is happening. This is how you should do it is, is a personal thing. Um, and, you know, there's kind of no, no way around that. And so, um, you know, so we, we want to do it right, but we also know expectations for tech startups, especially is that, you know, we want our user experience to be pretty flawless, but if we have to go in and do some manual stuff in the back end that you might not want, um, to do, you might want to have fixed and, uh, in your later versions, then, then yeah, we're, we're, we're going to do that. So, um, no cutting corners, but we're definitely going to take the corners pretty quickly. We just feel that it's, it's time. We feel that why not? Um, if you're an organization, you have the content, you have the list, you have the story. Let's try to do a couple drops potentially before the midterms. Let's try to have an effect. Also, one thing going back to the platform We'll, front row is planning on fostering this community. Um, and I think that that's really important and potentially a differentiator is that we want people to understand why political NFTs, progressive political NFTs, why being a, why being a collector, why buying these things is, is good. It's a good thing to do. eBay, the example you brought up of an online marketplace, has two sides. It has the sellers and the buyers, right? As I guess I understand it, you would have organizations and maybe other things that you provide to that marketplace to sell, plus whoever you can bring in to be buyers. But what if I wanted to sell some memorabilia that was political of my own there in an NFT form? What would work potentially? Tell me more about this marketplace. Yeah. I would say if you have a great piece of political um, memorabilia, I would say partner with a political organization you really care about. Um, and and in, when you do that, it's probably best that you, you know, go through a process and go through a sales process that has that has kind of the compliance built in um, in terms of, of name. And so, you know, so then front row would be would be the places you have to go. I think that you there's a lot of options if you want to just sell it as a regular person um, and you just want a crypto wallet to crypto wallet. But I think that the story, kind of going back to my Peter Max um, public libraries things, and why I think NFTs can be powerful, even more powerful than just owning, you know, a pixelated piece of art or, or whatever, is that the story that this powers. I have this Peter Max, 
The art's fine. It's colorful. But I, but I bought it because I support the public libraries. Um, and I think that that, I think that will be key to, and I think that'd be key to success on both fronts. I think it's key to the contributor who gives, you know, potentially hundreds of dollars into the emails um, for them to feel even more engaged with the organization. And then also, you know, beneficial to these organizations that we need to be well-funded, that we need to fight on, that we just need to help power. That's why Front Row is going to be um, the place for, for these organizations and for the sellers and for the buyers is because we all agree that this is why we're doing this. And the why makes it better than just selling your old clothes on eBay. What have I not asked you about front row that would help explain it to uh, someone out there or just tell your story about it more? What should I have asked that I haven't? Oh, um, well, I will say this has been incredibly great in an in-depth conversation about it. And I really appreciate your time and questions. I think the one thing just want to get, get out ahead is that one of the reasons when we were first talking to folks about doing NFTs was the energy consumption that blockchains do. Um, and so their, their carbon footprint. Um, and, you know, a lot of progressive organizations, right, we want to, you know, we, we want to participate in this space, but the space is, is, is not doing good for the, for the planet. Those computations are energy consumptive, ridiculously so. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just because of that, that proof of work mentality that is part of the security. So, yeah, totally get it. Um, and like the, the layer one blockchains, Ethereum, um, especially uh, very, you know, very, very cost heavy. Um, in terms of in terms of energy. So totally get it. And so, you know, front row is carbon negative portion of the sales um, that that front row takes goes to calculate what the carbon impact was. And we have a bunch of partner organizations. Patch.io is one that does carbon sequestration projects, um, uh, for for example. And then also for a lot of NFTs, you know, we could be on the layer two, um, which is a lot less energy cons- consumptive. We do Matic. Um, which is a very well-known layer too, that energy costs are, are very, very minimal. So just want to be very upfront. And, you know, and also Ethereum, you know, is going to a proof of stake model, which is much, much less energy. Um, so the very big problem, front row has solved it. Plus we think that the industry itself is, um, is solving it as well. So that we did, didn't mention it during our long call, but figured um, this is a good opportunity. How long do you think it takes you to turn this into a profitable enterprise? I would say by the end of the 2024 cycle. Well, I am going to watch it with interest. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about it. This is great. I'll take you up on your offer to come back uh, down the road when things are rolling. Perfect. Uh, so... Uh, thanks much. That was Parker Butterworth. Parker is at cn4partners.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.